Thank you very much, Paul. We have so much to give God the glory for, especially as we see him redeeming those who have been lost in outer darkness. It's just a joy. We continue this morning in our series on the master's morality. And we're so thankful for Reverend Al Martin and for what he had to say to us about being within the orbit of God's grace, meaning that the dominion of sin has been broken, as you remember, out of its dominion, freed from its power, that our native hatred of God's law has been done away with. And now we love in the inner man to do the things that God would have us do. And that our attachment to this present world has been severed. It's been cut. And we're freed to soar into the truth as the truth shall set you free. It's my lot this morning to speak to you on the mind. The mind. The Christian mind. On Friday, Dewey will speak to us on the non-negotiable. Ten things that he considers he will not negotiate. The following Monday, Dr. MacArthur will speak on gray areas. And then we'll have a chapel a Tuesday chapel next week. So you want to mark it on your calendar. A Tuesday chapel next week due to the council of reference. Some of the friends, pastors who are friends of our college will be with us and we'll hold the chapel on their honor. On Wednesday, I'll speak to you again on sexuality. Dewey will follow up again with another message on sexuality. The next Monday, we'll have a message on music. Then on Wednesday, we'll have uh, Bob Vernon, the assistant police chief, will come in and speak to us on crime, media, and drugs. And then on Friday, we'll have a message about no compromise and what it means to be an uncompromising believer. And then on Monday, sometime from now, almost at the end of this month, we'll have a Q&A with Dr. MacArthur and we can get down to any questions that still might be in your mind and how does he, in a practical way, approach some of the things that he faces in this whole area of the master's morality. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited. I hope your hearts are open. We want you to be free, standing, moral agents. That's our desire. That's our commitment. Personally, that's why I came to this college. I came to this college to be involved with your lives so that you could be free, standing, moral agents. People who do what you do because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And this series is instrumental to that. So may we pray. Open your own heart, if you would, to the Lord, to His Word. Would you confess any sin that you might have? Would you think about your own mind? Does it bring glory to the Lord? Ask Him to teach you this morning what he would have you to know. Our Father, one of the greatest thoughts on earth is that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would be like-minded with each other. Lord, I ask that as we speak this morning, as your word is proclaimed, I pray that the power of your spirit would be ministering to us. I pray for the integrity of each student here that they would open themselves and become vulnerable to the truth and make the corrections or make the changes or be confirmed already in what they're doing that is pleasing to you. Guard my mouth from error, I pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Among the many unforgettable experiences that I had or I'm having as a pastor of Grace Church, 
for some five years is what we call POD. It's not paid on delivery. It's called Pastor of the Day. And it's a ministry we have as a large church and the kind of community that we have on any given day, 10, 15, 20 people will either call the church who have no affiliation with our church whatsoever or who will come through our doors looking for help. And the range of needs goes from the basic mundane physical needs to some deep and profound spiritual needs. And there are about 30 guys on staff, 30 pastors, and all of us go in a rotation manner through the week so that any given day you'll have at least half a day in which you'll be the physician on call, so to speak. And if a person comes through the door or if the phone rings and it's a spiritual need and you're on call, you stop whatever you're doing and you go to meet this person's need. For five years, I had the privilege of doing that. And in the, in the time, I've come across some amazing things. One day, a man walked into my office, sat down and told me that he was Jesus, the Messiah. That's right. That's what he said. I asked him if he could show me the nail prints in his hands, at which time he put his hands in his pockets and left, <laughs> because that was kind of the proof that would have tested the pudding. Later uh, in my time there, I had a phone call from a gal in Florida, and she uh, was battling suicide. Every time she saw a sharp object, it was not her desire to stab it into someone else. It was her desire to kill herself with it. She was a self-professed witch. She was a lesbian. She'd gone to a, uh, a concert with Stevie Nicks, and the moment she saw Stevie Nicks, she, she, she tells me, all these lesbian desires aroused within her, and since then she's been a practicing lesbian. She tells me that Stevie is a, a lesbian and a witch as well. So we get all kinds of people who call the church and want help. Different situations. But the one that sticks out in my mind this morning is a call I received from Farmington, New Mexico. A man was on the phone. He said, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. I said, well, tell me about that. He said, well, as a kid, I went to church and I even gave my life to Jesus. But then as a teenager, I began to I began to, to do some drugs and I began to get involved in sex. And it just seemed that I, I couldn't get away from it all. And then I got married and, and my wife didn't really ever satisfy me in, in, in the sexual arena. And so I began to involve myself in, in, in tremendous pornographic material. He said he had stacks of pornographic magazines and films by the hour of blatant open pornography. And in the process, there began a reconditioning process of his mind in which normal, everyday, average words were reassociated with sexual connotations. And so that by his own admission, at work, when he was away from the sexual stimulus, just trying to work in the office, he could hardly read a memo, but come across one of these words that had picked up a new sexual connotation and his entire mind was again filled with the trash. He was mastered by sex, filled with sexual trash. Had he committed the unpardonable sin? Of course not. The only sin that the Lord will not pardon is disbelief. You don't believe in Jesus and he won't pardon that. That is the one unpardonable sin. But what had he done? Well, he began to weep on the phone. He began to sob. I said, I, I said to him, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. I said, just what I said to you, the only thing for which Jesus won't forgive you is if you refuse him. And then he began to weep. And then he began to sob uncontrollably. I didn't know what he was doing. And he started to say something. He said, I can't. And he cried some more. He said, I can't even pray. I said, why not? He said, because every time I close my eyes and I get on my knees and I try to pray to Jesus. I have a mental picture of a pornographic naked Jesus. 
man would frighten me. What have I done to my mind? What have I done to myself? Well, he hadn't committed the unpardonable sin, but he certainly had filled his mind so completely with trash that he could no longer escape it. He was the prisoner of his own memories and conditioned mental responses. The amazing thing, every single one of us in this room on a moment-by-moment -moment basis is making decisions on what we're going to use our mind to do. Every single one of us. What are you doing with your mind? I bring this horribly graphic and sinful account to your attention this morning only to illustrate that there's a battle going on. There's a battle for our minds. It's an intense battle. It's one we need to fight every single moment of every single day. And the choices you are making, there is no middle ground here. Uh, me as a Christian, you as a Christian, we are making decisions that are going to set our, our mind on the things of the flesh, or we are making decisions that will set our mind on the things of the spirit. No, there's no middle ground. There is no numb mind. There is no, well, I'm not really doing either these days. If you're not setting your mind on things above, if you're not setting your mind on the things of the spirit, you are, in fact, destroying and corrupting your mind, whether you recognize it or not. Your mind is either full of sex and sexual fantasy or purity. Your mind is either feasting on pride, selfishness, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, an independent spirit from God and men, you and you alone, or your mind is filled with a consciousness of humility and dependence and self-effacement. Your mind is either lying to itself and to others about you, about your Christianity in a deep, dark self-deception, or your mind is consistently making choices to be an honest person of integrity. You're either searing your conscience as you push away the prodding and the prodding, prodding of the Lord, or you are constantly proving yourself to be vulnerable. In any given day, you'll make 5,000, 5 million choices in these arenas. And your mind will either be used by your choice for things of righteousness or things of unrighteousness. There is no middle ground. Now, the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you winning or are you losing that battle? And I trust you'll answer that openly. Just this morning, think about yourself since you woke up this morning. What has your mind been doing? Can you say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to obedience in Christ. Are we taking every thought captive to obedience to Jesus Christ? I would like to suggest that this process of taking our thoughts captive to Jesus Christ will center around three things, three arenas in which you'll have to fight if you're going to win. Three places you've got to roll your sleeves up and say, here I come. It's the fight against what I call the peril of privacy. The peril of privacy. You'll have to fight that battle. Secondly, you'll have to fight to reckon, reckon what is real. And I'll explain that. You'll have to fight to reckon or believe or consider what is real. And thirdly, you'll have to fight in reaching for renewal. Reaching for renewal. Let's consider the first point. The peril of privacy. 
we make a major mistake in our lives, and it's this. We say to ourselves, it doesn't really matter what I think. I can think anything I want to think, because, you know, after all, thoughts are only thoughts. And what's so bad about thoughts? I mean, it's my private little world here. I can do anything I want inside my cerebral cortex. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not bothering anybody. My thoughts are my thoughts. It's not your business. It's not God's business. My thoughts are my thoughts. And it's okay for me to think bad thoughts. And even if my thoughts aren't pure, and even if my thoughts aren't right, and even if my thoughts don't completely please the Lord, it's okay. It's okay. It's just my mind. It's just what I'm thinking. It's not what I'm doing. We say that to ourselves. And I like to suggest that you are hurting. You're hurting three people. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting God. And you're hurting me. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting God. And you're hurting the people around you. Why? Let's take God first. You're hurting God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus comes up to the Pharisees. And you've heard about the Pharisees. They're whitewashed sepulchers. And they were doing basically nothing wrong on the outside. They were within the bounds. And Jesus looks at them and they've been quoting this famous verse that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? And they're making sure that nobody commits adultery and that they don't commit adultery on the outside. And Jesus looks at them square in the face and says, You've heard it's been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, every man who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus intrudes the human standard. It's okay that I can think what I want to think. All that matters is what I do. And he says, that's a bunch of baloney. I hold you accountable for what you think. He says to the man who says, you've heard it's been said, you shall not commit murder. And nobody, none of these Pharisees were murdering. But he says, if you're angry with your brother, if you say raka in your heart to your brother, you've murdered him already in your heart. God holds you accountable for your thought life. And in God's eyes, whether you've done it or whether you've thought it, isn't the issue. You're held accountable for each. Let's take the second thought. You're accountable. You're hurting yourself with your thoughts. Turn with me, will you, for just a second to Romans chapter 1. The most amazing thing here. Romans chapter 1. Look at um, verse 18 for just a second. It says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who do what? This wrath is coming to them because they do something. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. These men are characteristically and patterningly taking the truth of God and suppressing it in unrighteousness. And it goes on to talk about those things which are known of God are made manifest through the creation. And they take the general information that God reveals about himself through creation, this body of truth about himself, and they take this truth and they suppress it. Purposefully, willfully, consistently suppress the truth. Well, they have an interesting lot in life. Look at verse 21. It describes what goes on. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed animals and the crawling creatures. What does God do in response? Look at there in verse 24. What does God do in response? Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. 
to the impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. That's a description of heterosexuality. Men with women, women with men outside of marriage. What's the process? Truth about God, truth about himself. Reject that truth on a mental basis. Nobody did anything. They just mentally rejected the truth that God had given them. They spurned his truth. And then he worked that out in their lives as he gave them over to the lust that was there. It continues. And they keep reading there in 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. What happens again? For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. We're talking about lesbianism here. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The process continues. I reject the truth of God and turns me over to it, to my own rejection. And then they continue to reject the truth of God and suppress the knowledge that they have about Jesus Christ and everything else. And he turns them over again. And they continue one last time. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What's a depraved mind? I think it's defined defined in verse 32. A depraved mind, although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same thing, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is a scary thought, folks. Not only is it sin when you think sin, not only is it done in the presence of the courts of heaven and God holds you accountable for your thought life, not just for what you do, but there is a dynamic in the way that God has structured reality. And if you think long enough and desire enough and fantasize enough about a particular area of sin, God will turn you over to it. That's frightening. There are consequences. Reaping the ruin. You sow trash. More than just garbage in, garbage out. You sow trash on a consistent basis in your life. Be careful. God just may give you what you're thinking about. And that'll affect the whole body of Christ. So all three of us are affected with your private thoughts. God is affected. You are affected. And I am affected. And the point here is that the mental problems came first. And that led to the next problem. As a student at Talbot, I was in my third year, and we had a new freshman class come in. And among these men was a guy who just came to us from the Los Angeles Police Department. He was an undercover, secret, top special type agent guy, about 45 years old, real tall, real foreboding personality and personage. And he stood up and gave his testimony. And somehow intertwined was this case where he had been the leading investigator on the Hillside Strangler case. All of us just go, no kidding. I mean, this is the guy who did all that work. Tracked this jerk down. Of course, the hillside strangler made a practice of brutally raping and then murdering women. Couldn't catch him for a long time. And they finally got real close and a big clue to the whole thing which turned it all around. And you know how that kind of happens. They just gathered data and then all of a sudden one thing will turn it. Because they found his apartment. And he, he describes the situation where he and his partner busted in the door, thinking that he might be there. And while he wasn't there, the remnants of his mind were. 
because on the walls of this shabby little apartment were as closely put together as wallpaper, macrame, collage, pornographic pictures, everywhere on his apartment. Stacks of magazines everywhere. And they looked at each other and they said, oh, now we know why the guy does what he does. You see, they understood that the picture of that, the inner part of that apartment was a good representation of what his mind looked like on the inside. Supposing we had this overhead here that was a real overhead. You know what a real overhead is? A real overhead is an overhead that we can put over your head. And when we turn it on, everything you've been thinking goes graphically up on the screen. Any volunteers? See, we all get squeamish, man. The peril of privacy. Hold it. Don't invade my space. If we had a machine like that, could any of us sit down in a chair and plug that thing on and not just have words of what we've been thinking come up, but the graphic displays of our pride or our lying or our selfishness or our sex sins graphically portrayed up there? How would you do? My mind is drawn to Psalm 19:14, which says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in whose sight? Thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We don't have these kind of machines on earth, but guess who does? And this isn't a threat. This isn't a, no, 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 don't do that because Jesus sees. This is just the mere fact that what you think, what you do with your mind is not hidden from the presence of Jesus. He sees it. He says, let the words of the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He didn't say, let me get it into your sight. That was a given that he would see it. It was whether or not it would be acceptable in the sight. Of God. You know, if we're going to win this battle for our minds, we've got to have some type of understanding that our private world should be able to be made private, public. You should strive with each and every thought you think to be able to have that thought graphically portrayed for the world to see. Don't fool yourself. Don't allow yourself any slack just because it's just you and it's just your mind. Because it's not. It's God. It's what's going to happen in your life. And it's your brothers and sisters. The battle for the mind. Fight for the peril of privacy. Secondly, fight to reckon what is real. What do I mean by that? Fight to reckon what is real. The word reckon. Turn to Romans chapter 6, and we could almost entitle this message The Roman Mind, because all of our points come out of the book of Romans. But turn to uh, Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 11 for just a second. And it says here, even so consider. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And as a new believer, I learned this in the uh, King James Version, and it says, likewise, reckon ye also. The word consider that you see is the word reckon. And so we come with our title, reckon what is real. The word reckon happens to be the very first imperatival verb in the entire book of Romans. Six chapters of verbiage from the Apostle Paul and not one command. Just information after information. Chapters one to three, you're all in sin. No excuse. Everybody's completely depraved. Chapters three, four, faith. Bring salvation in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, with that salvation, you're at peace with God. And now chapter 6, consider, reckon. 
The word reckon is actually a banking term. It was used synonymously with to calculate. Look in your checkbook and add up your balance, so to speak. Add up the facts. Interesting thought. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. What are these things that we're supposed to consider? What are these extremely important things which Paul tells us we should consider? I think they're found in verse 6. There's three things. Write these down, will you? These just absolutely changed my life. Knowing this, verse 6 says, that our old self was crucified. That's the first thing. Know that your old self was crucified. Know that at the point of your salvation, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the person of Jesus Christ. And somehow, in a way which defies time and space, you were on the cross with him when he was crucified. And you died there with him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The man you once were, the woman you once were prior to the moment of your salvation has been crucified. It's dead. An old biography has been shut. A new biography has been opened. You're saying, I didn't feel that. I didn't sense that. That's why he's telling you to reckon it so. It's not immediately apparent. Believe it because it's propositional truth. When you came to know Jesus Christ, the person you were with all of your, your sinful nature was crucified. Dead. The second thing he wants you to realize is right there that our body of sin might be done away with. Our body of sin might be done away with. What's he talking about? That's my flesh. That's my humanness. Wait a minute. Done away with? I'm still here. The word done away with is interpreted by Hebrews 2.14. the other place it's used in the New Testament. And it's used of what happened to Satan after Jesus Christ was victorious in raising from the dead. And it says that Satan was rendered powerless. Now, Satan isn't gone, is he? Satan's still here. But is Satan in absolute control? No, Jesus Christ took care of that on the cross and the resurrection. So he's still here. He's a dominant force. He's a dominant power. He's present. He's active. He's a roaring lion. But he has been rendered the ultimate power in the decisions. You are in the same battle in another sense. You are stuck in your flesh. You are stuck with a memory bank that remembers everything that you were before you were in Christ. And your flesh and your mind and everything about you at times will call out and long to be involved in sin. You will be tempted in intense ways. You are tempted in intense ways. And you're going to say, I can't resist this temptation. It's too much for me. It's too big. I give up because everything in you, your eyes and your glands and your hands and your arms and every member of your body calls out to you to succumb to that temptation. And it will appear to you a literal impossibility not to succumb. Reckon. Believe. Consider. Add up the facts. What are the facts? Your body has been destroyed and taken away its absolute power over you. Your body does not have absolute power over you. It used to. It doesn't now. You can say no to your body. Because you were crucified with Christ. The third thing, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Amazing thought. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Three things he wants us to consider. First, that you've been crucified in Christ. The old self has been crucified. It's no longer there. You're a new creature in Christ. Secondly, that which calls you to sin, that which so entices you, that which feels so overpowering, is in its feeling that way. But in reality... 
it's been rendered absolute power. It does not have absolute power. You do in Christ. And the reason for all that is that you should no longer be slaves to sin. Now look back at verse 11 for a second. It says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Keep going. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's a phenomenal passage. I recommend you memorize that. I did. The first year, the first two months of my salvation, I committed that to memory. Because it did something. You see, as, as one who came from the world, I understood that the mindset of the world was the only criteria you need to think through when making a decision whether to do something or not do something is whether or not doing that thing would make you feel good. Right? The only criteria by which I make decisions in my life according to the world standard is does it feel good? If it feels good, do it. If it makes me happy, do it. Malvin Maddox, a contributing writer for Time magazine, he wrote a little thing called The New Cult of Madness, Thinking as a Bad Habit. He says, reason and logic have in fact become dirty words, death words. They've been replaced by the life words of feeling and impulse. That's the theme of our age. Feeling and impulse. If it feels good, do it. Ask yourself only one question when making a decision. Does it feel good? If yes, do it. If no, don't. Don't consider what's right. Don't consider what's wrong. Don't think it through. Don't consider consequences. Just think, does it feel good? Respond to your glands. Francis Schaeffer wrote this. Beware, neither experience nor emotion is the basis of faith. The basis of our faith is that certain things are true. Fact. Don't base your life on feeling. Base your life on fact. The whole man, including the intellect, is to act upon the fact that certain things are true. We must first stress that the basis of our faith is neither experience nor emotion, but truth as God has given it in his verbalized propositional form in the scriptures, and which we first of all apprehend with our minds and then commit the rest of our bodies to follow. There it is right there. When you feel, as I feel, as we all feel, the temptation to sin, whether it be a, a bad usage of your time, whether it be sexually oriented, whether it be pride, whether it be lying, whether it be whatever it is, and you feel the calling and the beckoning of sin and it's crouching at your door. The Apostle Paul says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin. Base your decision upon the facts, which are that you've died. The body of sin has been done away with. Why? That you should no longer be subservient to sin. That happened here, right here. And it requires tremendous mental energy. I don't mean in a, in a weird sense of energy. It requires tremendous work. You must be committed.